go above and beyond, raise more than what you think. Don't, don't, you know, come in and say, we need exactly, you know, $2.6 million to do everything due diligence wise and, and, um, down payment on a loan, go above and beyond that. Always have working capital, which means you just have some money there for just in case some larger items happen. We typically try to do like one month's total revenue is working capital, just as a rough, rough rule of thumb. Keep extra money there because um, chances are you you probably will need it, especially if you're buying, you know, older properties, you know, 70s and 80s or 60s, things like that. If you're buying new, not not as you know big of a concern, but when you're buying a building that's you know 40, 50 years old, things will come up. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards educating investors and entrepreneurs who want to break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, it is my job to explore, dissect, and interview the cream of the crop when it comes to real estate investing here in the United States. And the reason that I do that is so I can educate you guys, so you guys can go out and make the right decisions when it comes to investing for cash flow to create long-term wealth and financial freedom. If you are new to this show, then welcome. I welcome you to this show and I encourage you to go back and start from the beginning and work your way through each and every episode and listen to the incredible content that my guests have given to this show. You can find this show on all the platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you podcast, I will be. Remember to hit subscribe and each and every week you'll be notified when the latest cracking episode is launched. Before we dive into today's show and I introduce you to the cracking entrepreneur, remember that I do have a free ebook. And if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, it is pretty simple. Firstly, all you need to do is jump on iTunes and leave the show a review. It helps to show iTunes that we're creating an awesome community of entrepreneurs who want to learn more about investing here in the United States. Once you've left that comment, on iTunes, shoot me a screenshot of that comment to info, that's I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com. And in return, I will send you my brand spanking new ebook called The Art and Science of Raising Capital Like a Pro, The 4P Rule. And it is the book, a very simple ebook, which is set up to change your mindset about the benefits of raising capital to start going out and getting more deals done. And the four Ps are pretty simple. It is professionalism. It is pitch practice and patience. Those four Ps are the things that I've seen in myself and in other successful syndicators who go out and raise capital successfully. Remember, if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, jump on iTunes, leave the show a five-star review, then shoot me the screenshot at info at rsnpropertygroup.com. Also, remember, spots are filling up really quickly in my mentorship program here in 2017. And if you want to start learning about how to successfully close on your first multifamily deal, then this mentorship program is for you. I walk you through the A to Z of multifamily investing, from analyzing and choosing the right markets, to building your right team, to close how to close on a deal and obtain the best financing. And to top it all off, I give you the tools to start raising capital successfully as a newbie so you can get more deals done and you can grow your net worth. I help you establish your inner key person of influence and help you create a cracking personal brand. If you are interested in taking that next step and you want to get involved in my mentorship program, it's pretty easy. Again, shoot me an email at info, the I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com and put in the subject line, mentorship program. Okay, lastly, if you do have any comments or feedback for this show, I love hearing from my loyal listeners. And the easiest way you can do that is jump on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com forward slash podcast. And remember to leave some comments in the show section of any of the shows that you do like. I love hearing from you guys. It helps me create an even better show and it helps me motivate to you know create, giving you the best content that I possibly can. So you guys can go out there and start successfully investing here in the United States. All right, guys, let's get cracking and into today's show. Today's 
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with the power couple, Mark and Tamil Kenny. They are full-time real estate investors, educators, entrepreneurs, and founders of Think Multifamily. They have a passion to help others wisely invest in real estate. Tamil is a published author and was previously a registered nurse. Mark was previously a CPA and IT consultant. They have two wonderful children, Taylor and Paige, and they currently call Texas their home. So without further ado, let's get them out here. G'day, guys. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. This is Mark, and Tamil is unfortunately not able to make it today. She oh, has some other obligations. That's unfortunate, but we've got you, which is really, really awesome to have you on our show. Um, but before we do dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, can you elaborate a little bit more on your background? You have a CPA background, IT background, and what was the mental mind shift change that got you wanting to pursue real estate investing rather than sticking it in your day job for the next uh, 40 or 50 years of your life? Right. Good questions. So I grew up kind of one of seven, not a, not a lot of um, money in the household. So when I was pretty young, I decided that I wanted to do something different than the normal day-to-day job and was pretty entrepreneur type guy. Um, and then I started buying real estate when I was 23, right out of college. And really it was because I, I thought it was something that I saw other people that are making a fair bit of money doing also, I understood it was something that was tangible in, you know, other than stock markets and things like that, that it's not tangible. So I started buying pretty early, but I also started working corporate world and, and kind of got caught up in the corporate world. I was consulting, um, like you mentioned, I was a CPA for a couple of years and then switched to management, IT consulting, work for some large organizations. And I really kind of got stuck where I was making a lot of money and figured I really wouldn't be able to replace that income just through real estate at the time. That was my mindset. I also had my, my own IT company in 2008. I started and started making even more money doing that. But then about three and a half, four years ago, I was sitting there. We had bought smaller properties, but I was sitting there going, yeah, making good money overall. But I had people in India and Australia and Switzerland and pretty much all over the world. And I had no time, no flexibility whatsoever, my schedule. I couldn't really go on vacation. I couldn't really do anything. So the money was kind of useless. I was, you know, truthfully neglecting um, Tammy, my, you know, to me and my wife and also the kids and, and all that. So I kind of had a, a mindset shift that I don't want my life to be this way going forward. And I don't want my kids to to see this as a life in, in for them going forward. So I, you know, made a pretty tough decision at that point in time to say, well, I'm going to stop doing IT and I'm going to switch to do full-time real estate and start buying larger properties. I took a pretty significant pay cut <laughs> doing that, which is hard. I mean, fortunately for me, in fairness, I did have some additional money coming in because some products that we developed, but it wasn't enough to really sustain our, you know, our, our life. So I just, it was a focus thing for me. Once I jumped into it, <clears throat> it was pretty difficult, you know, finding our first deal. Um, but after we, you know, we got hooked up with another guy that really, you know, helped us as well. And it was a good partnership and we ended up buying properties and we have 1,750 you know, units or doors right now. We have another 344 that we're going to close on, um, here soon. So it was a mindset and I'm pretty focused type guy, which is helpful, but I also had a negative mindset thinking, man, I can't replace my, my IT business income. Right. And um, that was a big shift for me, and it was a big jump for me I, to make. I could, I could completely, you know, I completely sympathize with you. A lot of people on, you know, listening to this show had the same thing, right? That they're, they're they're stuck in their comfort zone of I'm earning, you know, whatever they're earning, hundred thousand dollars a year, which is a very good income for for the average American or even the average Australian or whoever. And to then leave that safety and that safety net to go and pursue and back yourself to do something that's a little bit maybe out of the ordinary. Like, I don't think you meet too many people who are just saying, hey, I'm going to leave my secure day job to go and uh, pursue this real estate investing full time. So it must have been tough. But I think it sounded like you did the right thing from, from a family point of view so you can spend more time with your family, which is which is awesome and, and, and well done to you. So. So right. big, big, big pat on the back, right? <laughs> no, thanks. And, and leaving, the, leaving the corporate job wasn't as difficult for me, truthfully, because, but leaving my corporate, I'm uh, sorry, leaving my IT business that I started was harder for me because that actually, uh, my income exponentially went up doing that. 
Um, and that's tough. I mean, growing up, not to, you know, I, it's, it's a fear thing, right? It's a, a fear thing about not having enough money for your family, but it, um, it's a big, it's a big jump. Like you mentioned, I have no regrets whatsoever doing it. And the, the best part about it right now as well, we're, we're involving our kids in the business. Uh, they're 12 and nine, we homeschool them. And we also supplement greatly with additional information about investing and real estate. So they're able to, to get that exposure and also able to, um, Tamil, my, her name is also Tammy short mm-hmm. for short, but Tamil, right. I got to do this full time. That's yeah, and that's incredible. I think that's really what it's all about, right? You have more time to to spend with your kids. You're you're educating them at home. You have more time to probably take vacation now because I think you said in the early on that you didn't have a lot of time to take vacation, and your money was useless to you, which is kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> but how did talk, talk to me a little bit about how you changed from I, I take it you were investing in small single family, right? And then you jumped into multifamily. What three or four years ago you said, or was it was yes. it a gradual transition? to sort of medium-sized multifamily um, over the, the last course of f- five to 10 years? Yeah, the first ones we did on our own were 64 units after the, we were buying two, three, four unit type deals. Did a 64 unit, is actually two 32 unit properties right next door, same, the same sale. And then, uh, you know, and then uh, a couple months ago, we closed on a 454 unit deal in Atlanta. So, and we have ones in between there. So it was, I would say it was somewhat gradual, but it was very, very quickly in a short period of time, we were buying larger and larger properties. And that's, that's the thing you have to come over, overcome, sorry, is the, the fear factor, right? I mean, right. <laughs> um, I still get nervous and I think you should get nervous because mm-hmm. you syndicate deals and we're taking other people's money. So if right. you don't get nervous about that, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you mentioned Atlanta. Uh, what other markets are you investing in right now? So we live in Dallas, Texas, and we invested in Colorado, Atlanta, and uh, we had some properties in, in Michigan. That's where we started. Um, we're not we're not investing anything up there, and we haven't for a number of years. But though we still own one property there, but we look at a lot of other markets. Um, we're not just tied to the ones that we're in right now. But I would caution anyone looking at another market that it could turn out to be a big waste of time if you don't already have any type of relationships there, either with brokers and or somebody that you can partner with kind of on the ground there. And and that's how we got into Atlanta. We were looking there beforehand and really didn't get much traction, even though we, we were pretty you know successful in Dallas. But we were fortunate enough to find a very, very talented partner there in Atlanta uh, that had been there for a long, long time. And, and that's how we got started in Atlanta. Beautiful. And and how are you finding the difference between Atlanta and Dallas right now? I know Dallas is super hot to try and get a, a deal done. Is Atlanta a little bit behind Dallas in, in terms of its progression? It is. And I don't, you know, I would say Dallas is becoming, I won't use this word, but, you know, almost impossible to find a deal that meets our investors' returns. Well, you know, last year we closed on was September 2016. But in um, Atlanta, what we have found is that the, the cap rates aren't that much higher really than Dallas, but there's a lot more value-add deals that are still available out there. Um, the one we have now is 344 units we close on shortly, but there are 78 down units, like down to the studs. So we, we, you know, we're having a really, really hard time finding any type of deals like that in the Dallas area right now. So you're, 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 by the sound of it, um, pretty comfortable with rolling up the sleeves and, and, and getting that sort of you know, 78 units down. That's going to be a big reposition and probably take you the better part of 12 months to get those up and running again, right? And then you've got to fill them. Right. right. Yeah. Generally speaking, yes. We, we've done a fair bit of rehab ourselves. We're not experts by any means, but we're, we definitely know what it takes. And we, you know, we know lots of times it takes more time and, and, and more money. This one's a little bit unique without going into all the details. It's already our partner already owns it, so it's a it's a syndication on a buyout essentially um, from another partner. So the rehab, thankfully, is already in process and they're already to the sheetrock level. So it's a little bit different um, than your typical. We've done small ones as well, even downtown Dallas. And again, you typically will take more time. I would just say, you know, hire professionals. Don't try to be cheap on it. Hire the people that actually get it done. Even if someone's a little bit more in your mind from a price perspective, but you think they're better, then in the long run, you're probably going to be in for 
for less money because uh, <laughs> you can spend a lot of time doing rehab. Right, right. Well, Mark, today's show is all about understanding how to successfully close on a large multifamily. And we've talked a lot about on the show, you know, the closing, um, closing, just sort of general the word closing, but, you know, how to reposition the property once you have closed. But I want to dive a little bit deeper into that closing um, process and how you're doing it successfully from afar, being based in Dallas and closing on large deals in, uh, in like places like Atlanta and Denver. So can you outline the process involved uh, on closing on a large multifamily? deal from like a high level 30,000 foot level from submitting an LOI to getting to the closing table and what does that time period look like for you right so I'll just take a step back from you know you, you know you can't close on a property if you never get it right? <laughs> yeah. you know so um, just before it gets LOI just you know a few things right I mean you kind of have to define your criteria what are you looking for that could be which markets and, and why you look for certain markets we have criteria that we go through that and looking through a value add deal or where you're going to improve it or looking for a stabilized deal. And, you know, so kind of have your criteria. What, what can I even buy? You know, if I'm going to do it my, my own and the bank requires, you know, hundred percent net worth of the loan value, then, you know, I need to know that that's going to help determine what type of deals I can even look at. So just from that perspective and then, you know, your team, how do I find the deal through, you know, brokers, you know, and, and that's typically the way we do it. People have this notion where they'll go off and, send, you know, letters or whatever to these sellers or property, not sellers, actually property owners, and they're going to get all the deals that way. And I can tell you that's a, that's a pretty tough way of doing it. I personally think you're better off spending your time developing relationships with the brokers and um, they'll bring you deals, especially when you start doing deals. And then, you know, so before we, you know, go to the, the LOI piece, we'll usually, when you get the package from, from the broker, we get on their email list, but we also have relationships with them and we'll get deals that aren't necessarily being marketed to other people or just a handful of people. And then we, you know, we'll kind of do a real quick analysis. You know, we have a little application we built to just kind of help go through that process. But let's assume everything looks good. We look at the property, we tour the property and, and all and all looks good. We'll submit the LOI letter intent and in, in that it's pretty basic, you know, it's a little bit, you know, page and a half type thing and it will, it will have your, your typical things in it <clears throat> as far as, you know, the price and something that, you know, the earnest money, how much money you're going to put down. We typically try to do about 1% uh, of the value of the purchase price. You may have to include some hard money, right? Hard money, meaning it's money you're putting up. And if you walk away from the deal for whatever reason, you're going to lose that money. And a lot of a lot of sellers are requiring that now, and then the you know other things we'll have in there your typical due diligence, like you said, um, the timeline, the time to get the LOI varies significantly. But once you're under LOI, then it's usually you know about two weeks before you go to contract, just roughly. In between that time, we may have something called an early access agreement where we get access to the property even before we go to contract, but. Just assume we go to contract two weeks after uh, the LOI is approved and, and, and signed. Then we'll start our due diligence period. Um, we're a little bit shorter sometimes, you know, due diligence period, which will include the physical inspection of the property, but also, you know, even in some cases critical, it's going to include things like all the contracts that you may have to assume as part of the purchase of the property. It'll include the at least audit, looking at, you know, people living there and what they're paying, market surveys. So it's not just the people sometimes think the due diligence is just a physical asset piece, but it's not. It's a lot more to it than that. Um, so that's kind of, you know, you get through that period and that takes 21 to 30 days. We've done it shorter than that. And in some cases, we've we've done it shorter than that to be a little bit more competitive against other people. Uh, we have teams in place where we can move we can just move fast in, in doing that. But assume it's 30 days to do that as a, as a norm. But in between time, all through this, just to kind of, you know, level set too, we're, we're talking to lenders, you know, because next piece is really financing, but we're talking to your mortgage uh, lender, mortgage broker, well before that, even before we go under a contract, and in some cases before we submit the LOI. And I would encourage you to do that because people, that don't have as much experience will we'll assume, hey, I got you know 75 or 80% leverage 
on this deal that, you know, I invested in as a passive investor. I did one deal like that, but that doesn't mean you're going to get it on the new deal. There's certain areas in the country right now, you're only getting 60% leverage. And if you don't know that you didn't talk to somebody, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but between 65 and 75 or 80% leverage, uh, that's going to make, make or break your deal. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that, you know, financing can make or break the deal, you know, up front. And then <laughs> your third party manager company can make or break the deal when, once you, once you get it right. That's those two, two big things. But, um, you know, financing is an important piece. And then, you know, for us, since we syndicate deals or we, you know, we actually have other people that invest along with us and partner with us on the deal, the next step for us is we'll, you know, start raising money. But we don't wait till that step. We're kind of communicating to people, giving them an idea that we have an accepted LOI, we have a contract. So I would encourage people not to wait until the last minute uh, to start involving investors potentially uh, and you have the other things all the other fun stuff legal documents you know without going through all the legal aspects of it but i would say you know that that's critical you need you need sec attorney if you're going to raise money and then you know you get to close and and you you operate but you know the steps you know people kind of get you know i went through those kind of quickly and there are a lot of steps there but the steps aren't that much different really than buying a really small property or even buying a single family house. If you actually go through the steps I just went through, the main difference really is when you start getting into raising money and syndicating deals, you have a lot of legal aspects to it and you have the aspect of, of raising money. But the other steps, you know, if you're gonna buy a house, you have to define your criteria. You have to talk to a lender and look at the property and do, you know, do your due diligence on the property and all those things. So I don't want to say they're, you know, exactly the same, but I don't want people to think that this is some sort of rocket science type thing to do multifamily. It's, it's experience and there's a lot of terminology that's different, but at the end of the day, the steps are very similar. Yep. I can completely agree with that. And I think you just outlined everything very clearly for everyone because there are, it did, it did sound to me like, and, and I know this from, from closing my own deals, but there's a lot of parallel tracks, right, that are going on throughout the whole process. Once you've got the LOI signed, you're talking to investors, you're making sure, you know, you talked briefly about lease orders there and um, it's all, you know, you're opening escrow. So I want to talk a little bit about your team and who's there to support you. Obviously, your wife, uh, Tammy, um, is there, but are you having anyone else help you along the way, like your boots on the ground partners, if it's out of state or if it is in you know, Dallas, do you, do you drive the property yourself and do you, do you meet up there with your, t your property management team? How does that all work to help you get those parallel tracks uh, or manage those parallel tracks effectively to make sure you are getting to the close table on time? Right. So that's a good point. People look at these as going you know, one by one. They're steps, right? Well, they're, they're, they're simultaneous steps happening uh, a lot. And that's where you also, just as a quick comment on that, is you need, it's, it's strange, but if you're going to have all these certain deadlines and all these certain steps required to close, you need to have like a critical dates type list so you keep track of that because reality is you could actually be out a lot of money by missing a day by one minute, theoretically. The, the seller could say, thank you very much. I have your money. And uh, so that's critical. You know, the team-wise... There are a lot of people, as, as you know, you have the brokers and you have CPAs and legal and, and all the insurance. But in particular for due diligence, we always look at the property. We're always there for due diligence. We hire a third party company to do it. And I would strongly encourage you to do that. There, there are some property management companies that do that and, and we've hired them as well. But I would say do not try to do the due diligence on your own. I would say even if you're fairly qualified knowing, you know, roofing, electrical, plumbing, that's great. But investors aren't going to have a real warm and fuzzy feeling if you say I did all the due diligence myself and, and you know, it just doesn't doesn't uh, sit well with them. And um, I'm not qualified to even to do all those aspects. I know a fair bit, but I'm not qualified. So I hire a third party company to do it. It costs money to do that. Um, and you may lose that money if the deal doesn't go go through, right? But the fact is, you know, hire someone that does it every day. They bring in professionals for every single trade, you know, roofing, plumbing, electrical, you know, driveway, everything. And they'll give you a report with pictures 
I would say before you hire any due diligence team to do the work for you, I would say, please send me some sample reports you've done for other properties, multifamily properties, because there are some differences. Look at that. But I also would say, make sure your due diligence, diligence um, company will provide quotes for every single thing they find. I want to have a quote of what it would take to repair, replace, whatever it may be. If they're not doing that, and you're not qualified to come up with what it's going to cost to do something, the report is, I don't say it's useless, but it's not real beneficial <laughs> to you. You have to be able to take that. What what the whole point of having the report is to be able to come up with some sort of dollar figure to say, what is it going to cost for me to fix things at the property or maybe improve it? Um, so don't try to get your you know cousin or uncle that supposedly knows what they're doing to do it. Hire professionals to do it pay them to do it. It ranges, you know, depending on the size of the property, we, we find 25 to $40 a unit, just rough, you know, rule of thumb that it's going to cost you to do that. It's going to take your time. You're going to walk through and, you know, people say, well, do you walk through, you know, every single unit? Well, typically there are multiple teams there, but you better make sure that your teams that you have engaged walk through every unit and I know an example just recently, a guy bought over, you know, over a 300 unit deal and he walked 45 units and he closed on the deal and he was like, holy cow. But don't you think that the people selling it are going to show you the best 45 units? Um, so he he's in a bad spot right now. I mean, really, he's a bad spot because of that. Um, so go through that step. It's, you know, it's critical and it's going to make or break whether your assumptions you made before you went under a contract, they may not be valid, valid anymore. And you need to take all the information from the due diligence and separate it in my mind between what needs to be done that will help me generate revenue because of it and what needs to be done that is really just deferred maintenance that needs to be done. Is it going to generate any revenue? It may or may not save any on expenses either. So those type of things you're going to put money into, which could be a lot, may generate no value from an operating income whatsoever. So <laughs> you need to be, that's what you want to do, increase your net operating income. And some things you're going to put money into won't do that. No, you need to know that. I think there was some key gold nuggets there that you just went over. And I just want to drill down a little bit further into some of them just to make sure that, you know, everyone is understanding um, the process of, of, of the due diligence for a large multifamily. So you talked briefly about the, the building inspection and that will be conducted by a third party uh, operator and they should be covering, you know, HVAC, roofing, structural, you know, all of it. Um, and then I'm assuming you're getting your property management team to do the walkthroughs with you or, you know, get their own teams like because th they're two separate companies, right? You want to, just, you know, differentiate between the two that, that the, the is the, the third party property um, inspectors doing the walkthroughs of the units as well? Or is it just the property management team? It, uh, so we it could be so this if you have a property management company, they can typically do both. A lot of them, lot of them can. Some can't. But very rarely, you can't really engage a due diligence team that can do can do both. So what we do, you know, typically we hire someone that does the physical asset piece and they give us all the quotes and everything. But our property management company will also walk units like you described, Reed. And the reason for that, because they needed to know, because they're going to be doing the market surveys as far as what are other properties renting for in the area. Um, it's critical that they get an idea, the property management company, as far as what's the condition of the interior and what's going to take to get up to potentially, you know, the market rents in the area and what type of rehabs are being done. If if everyone in the area is putting granite countertops in and you don't have that, then that's something you're not going to get the same rent typically. Um, you're going to have to either upgrade or get lower rents. The property management company, as you mentioned, too, will do the lease audits for us. They'll go through and check all the units that are leased and compare the lease amounts to the rent roll, which the rent roll lists all the, the tenants and the amount they pay. And then they go look at the, the look at the unit and say, does someone actually live here? And did they pay last month and things like that? So, you know, there are a lot of property managed companies you can use that will do both aspects. We typically do a third party just for due diligence, physical, and then we'll property managed company that will do, will do both as well. But they're not, we, in that case, we don't make them do as much of the detail, they don't do the roofing and HVAC and things like that in that right. particular case. Right. 
right, right, right. Interesting. And talk to me a little bit about that. That market survey was very interesting that you mentioned that because hopefully before you've got put the offer in, you've got a kind of an idea of what's what things are renting for in the area, right? You wouldn't want to go in cold thinking I'm going to rent it for six fifty or seven fifty per unit, and the market's only at five fifty, right? So, right, is that just a a to to um com- you know shore up that your your assumptions in your underwriting? Right. So, I mean, theoretically, when you look at it, a property, and you know, you may know the area a little bit here and there, but you have no idea really what things are running around there until. One, the broker typically will have something in their their you know offering memorandum, their OM, which is their marketing material. They'll have other comps in the area, but again, you have to keep in mind they're they're selling the property, so you they're probably going to have the more you know favorable in their from a seller perspective comps in there. But it's 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 valuable because you can go look at those. For us, you know, we hear people that uh, we typically buy more of a, you know, class C's and, and maybe B's and some of the demographics are, are different, you know, as far as what, where we live right now. So I have people say, Hey, I went to this, you know, class C kind of in a you know, pretty bad area. And I, I walked in, you know, asked questions and, you know, with the, of the property and that's great. But end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be whatever about it, but you need someone that fits the clientele to physically go there and, you know, shop the property, they call it, right? And someone that is, you know, that they believe is really going to potentially rent it and uh, and get the information. You can try to call people. It won't be accurate necessarily. You have no idea. So the best thing, from in my opinion, to do is, is have your property management company, have someone that fits the demographics, right? Go shop the property. They can take pictures as well and verify that the rents that, one, that are in the, uh, offering memorandum from the bro- uh, broker and or someone called to get that information um, is accurate. There are tools out there too. You you probably know some of them, Yardy and Coast and things like that. They have random amounts. But again, those aren't necessarily always accurate. So the best way to do it is to have someone physically go there that knows, you know, demographic wise and then get the information for you and then you can compare it. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. And so we talked a lot about, about what, things are you looking for so once you've found you know you've it's like going on a treasure hunt right you're going to find these things along the way you're going to find issues with the property you're going to find maybe find issues with that have got nothing to do with actually the hard the, the physical property itself it's got more to do with the rents or the, the the leases that are signed so what are the kind of maybe top five things that you would go back to the seller on to say hey you know we didn't expect this and you know as such we need to we need to renegotiate some some things with you because this is not what we first expected uh, the property to be. What What are those sort of maybe top three to five things that that you right. in, in, your, in your your experience you've gone back to the seller on? So this is this will be considered a swear word from a seller perspective, and it's called the re, retrade. Retrade. Right? Right. <laughs> right. So that's that's just a term that's used. So I, as you mentioned, Reed, I come back and say, man, I did the I did the due diligence, and man, this is this is way different than what I thought or assumed, whatever reason, you know, I, uh, different. So, you know, if there's something you could physically see during your initial property tour, when you walk the property, like the exterior paint, uh, maybe the parking lot, things like that. In my personal opinion, do not go back to a seller and try to retrade those items. Um, you one, they may agree to it in this one deal, but you'll get a reputation for, within the industry of retrading for things that you shouldn't retrade on. So no seller wants you to retrade any items. But let's say, for example, we go there and we have a plumber comes and he says all the lines are, are messed up or they're cast iron, they're going to be we need to replace, and it's $200,000. So think of things that I couldn't see when I first looked at the property and it's in my initial walkthroughs and things like that. So anything, maybe roof, for example, maybe has more issues than you thought. Maybe there are multiple layers of roofing on there that you couldn't tell that were there. Uh, foundation issues. Um, so really anything that wouldn't be obvious from the naked eye as a, as a normal, reasonable person that could walk through and see. Anything like that is really fair, fair game to go back to the, the seller. But I also would just caution people that if it comes back where – your due diligence says, hey, you know, it's it's $100,000 to do all these items and 
and uh, you know it's a fifteen million dollar deal, right? Um, you can go back and ask the seller, at least bring it to their attention. But don't be don't be foolish and don't be prideful. And, and this is my personal opinion. I've seen it happen many times before. Don't lose a good deal over you wanting to win. You can still win. Um, and if the other guy thinks he beats you, fine. If the deal still works for you, move on. Be happy. Take the deal. So just be reasonable about what you're asking for. But basically, to answer your question, anything that's not obvious to the naked eye um, is something that you could consider going back to the, the seller and, and asking for a credit. Right, right. And, and that's on the physical side. What about on the non-physical side, like leases <laughs> and stuff like that? Right. Because that's that, that's when you start diving into sort of like the P&Ls and really how is right. this opera- property operating? So, yeah. So if, if uh, you, you will get you know, profit and loss, T12, for example, and rent roll, you'll get those from the from the seller well before you even go under contract. So now let's assume you're under contract and you you go do the lease audit and the, the leases are, things are leasing for different than what's on, you know, the rent roll and maybe the some of the things you follow the money, the, the money didn't go to the bank account, like, you know, things like that. So anything from a, you think about it, you're, you're buying a business. Right. So the business is being presented to you based on these financial assumptions and you have no idea whether they're accurate or not up front. You kind of have to assume that they're 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 true. But like you said, Reed, if you go in there and you start finding discrepancies from a financial perspective, one, I'd be pretty concerned of those are the only things you found. What didn't you find? You know what I mean? Really? Um, physical asset they can't hide. That you can hire companies and you can you can get through that and they'll find things. The financial aspect, you could spend a, a substantial amount of time trying to find all these differences. If it's a little bit here and there, a couple on the rent roll, maybe the the lease had eight hundred dollars and the rent roll had eight fifty, and a couple here and there, I would say that that's fine. But if you start finding more and more examples like that, or where things are on the P&L aren't accurate. Maybe the utility bills that were paid are different than what's on the, the T12 or the you know, profit and loss. I would, I would be pretty, I'd be pretty cautious moving forward with the deal personally. Mm-hmm. So is any of, of that, like say someone did say, okay, on the T12, the utilities are a hundred thousand dollars. And in reality, they're actually $200,000. Are you going to go back to them and say, what the hell? I would for sure. Yeah, I would. And I can tell you that if the broker, cause the broker wouldn't know this either, they would, they have a very uh, candid conversation with their seller and it probably wouldn't go well because it makes the broker look bad too. Right. Um, but we would go back and say, this is, yeah, what, what's going on here? Totally, totally different, um, than what was on presented to us. And uh, they may have, I mean, if it was one thing, they might have an example or a a legitimate reason for that. Mm -hmm. And you can listen to that, right? Sure. But if you start finding too many things, I, I would probably walk away from the deal. Okay. You would walk, you wouldn't try to re retrade them and say, well, look, <laughs> your NOI is $200,000 off now. I, 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 you know, this is your, your property is now really worth X rather than what I offered you. So either we do, you, we, we retrade you to that lower value or right. you either take it on the chin and say, well, this, this property still makes sense for me because I'm buying it at such a bargain. But no. Right. If, it, if it's one, you know, if it's a couple of things here and there, you probably get past it. But if you start finding two, like, more and more of those examples, as you're going through it, that's where I would get very nervous because they could be doing, <laughs> it's a lot easier to hide things like that than is a physical asset. Um, and you could, you know, as a, as a buyer, we could spend, you know, hundreds of hours trying to dissect and go through all that. And if it was one thing like utility bill and, you know, you could, like you said, you maybe get over that and say, Hey, you're, we're going to, you know, ask for a credit in the price because of that. But um, I would just say, it, you know, I can't pick a number. If it's three things, I would walk away or five things, I'd walk away. But it would matter, it would matter on the extent of it. And, and the biggest reason is because we could spend tons and tons of hours trying to find what else are they did they hide or, or miss? Right, right. No, I, and, and I think the other thing, giving your CPA background, like you, you have a bit of an advantage over other people. But for those people who don't have a CPA background, relying on, say, like a third-party audit, and, and if they're coming back to you saying, you know, shaking their heads and saying, you know, this is a mess, you know, take their advice, right, and don't try and push a deal that 
is is maybe from a financial point of view um, up the creek, so to speak. That's a very great point because you know don't go back and change your numbers to make the deal work now. <laughs> you know, I mean, if the deal doesn't work, we we've walked away from one deal in in, in our career, um, and it was it was more because of a physical. You know, they, they showed us two units and we looked at the other ones and they were nowhere near those two we saw. And we just couldn't get it to work uh, with the with the seller. But, yeah, you know, you're hiring people. If your people coming back to you are shaking their head saying, man, this is, you know, we don't we don't know what else we're going to find. This is something to be very cautious and concerned about. Um, take their advice. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're paying them. They're, they're the experts. Right. Right, right, right. Uh, it's it's all, hard. Hard to walk away from a deal. It is. It, it is hard, isn't it? Because once you've got, just getting to the to the LOI is very, very tough. And right. um, in in today's market, so so good stuff. Um, just a few other things I want to before we wrap the show up is any sort of pitfalls that you should highlight to some newbie investors out there to be careful of when conducting DD. Um, uh, any sort of tips or advice? So due diligence, yeah. So um, probably something we covered. I mean, hire professionals. And, you know, trust their opinion. And then I would say also go above and beyond. Raise more than what you think. Don't, don't you know, come in and say we need exactly, you know, $2.6 million to do everything due diligence wise and, and um, down payment on a loan. Go above and beyond that. Always have working capital, which means you just have some money there for just in case some larger items happen. We typically try to do like one month's total revenue is working capital, just as a rough, rough rule of thumb. Keep extra money there because um, chances are you you probably will need it, especially if you're buying, you know, older properties, you know, 70s and 80s or 60s, things like that. If you're buying new, not not as you know big of a concern, but you're buying a building that's you know, 40, 50 years old, things will come up. Hundred um, percent. One last question we didn't really cover was overall cost. Uh, I think maybe you did. You did mention is it twenty five to forty dollars a unit? That's sort of your rough order of magnitude to to, to to conduct due diligence. Um, or, or for those people out there listening, what are you? What are you as a syndicator expecting to to front? There's earnest money, obviously. There's uh, but but then, every, then everything else involved to get into the closing table before investors start going hard with their money. Right. So the, the earnest money you mentioned, attorney fees you'll have, um, due diligence. Typically, we just rough rule $25 to $40 um, a unit for that for physical. And that could be, um, it's just going to depend on the size and, and who's doing it. I think we paid about $15,000 for our, our 454 unit deal that we did here recently. And for the other, you know, lease audit and things like that. If you have a relationship with a property management company who you're using, they're not, they're not going to charge you for that. Uh, and in many cases, the, proper, the property management companies won't charge you even for the physical due diligence if you actually use them to to run the property for you. Yep, yep. So you're looking between maybe what PPMs, maybe ten grand, maybe another ten to fifteen grand of due diligence costs plus your earnest money. Uh, you got open escrow. Uh, any any other sort of items I've missed on that list? Uh, sort of uh, fronting the capital, so to speak, before anything anyone else. Because this 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 is this goes back to like when a deal go when you win an LOI, like things are getting real now. So like, what sort of money do you, do you have to have available in you as a syndicator? Bef- you know, just just start going out and spending money. You know, you need to have those other little bits and pieces lined up as well before submitting offers, right? Right. And some of those items are totally dependent on the size of the deal. And some of sure. them aren't. PPM sure. is fixed, whether I'm doing a 20 unit deal or, you know, 500 unit deal. But uh, I think you covered them. Nothing else yep. comes to mind right now on uh, other items right now. Yeah. So what, earnest money, 100K, maybe 15K for, so you're looking at maybe like $150,000 to 200 grand, if, if depending on the earnest money portion of it. Uh, and if you're going hard with any, any capital up front, would that be about right? Right. I mean, 1% typically we put for earnest money. So that's dependent on size. And then so, but yeah, you're going to, we've had, we've been out, you know, personally, uh, you know, close to $300,000 on certain deals mm-hmm. of our own money, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's going to be gotten, but it, it's it, not a good feeling. 
it's um, it's it's a it's 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 a significant amount of capital, and it's just something that people <laughs> mentally have to get comfortable with. And I think that's why everyone just takes you know sort of smaller steps and wants to get like a forty unit deal done, then a sixty, then a hundred, then you know, right. and, and work their way up so they can get comfortable with that. Uh, Mark, so we're coming to the end of the show before we, we wrap it up, but I just wanted to know like what does the future hold for you guys uh, now coming into twenty seventeen? Deals are sort of harder and harder to get done. Are you looking at any other asset classes? Um, and, and are you looking to stay in real estate for the long term? So staying in real estate for long term without a question. Um, we're also, um, we're looking at some other areas. You know, I like some some things like self-storage and, and uh, even assisted living and, and those areas. There's some reasons I don't like them as much as multifamily. I won't go into all the details on that, but I definitely like those asset classes. And, uh, you know, future-wise too, not just in addition to buying things, we still have, we have a few other deals in the works right now. So we're still, Still feeling pretty good, um, just because of the relationships we have with brokers and such. But this is this is the toughest we've seen to date, um, trying to find deals. And then future wise, we also we do some educational pieces. So we're we just had an event here recently, and we try to help other people, you know, kind of understand what it takes to invest passively in a in a wise way. You know, make good decisions in your investments. So we'll continue to do those events and and try to give back that way to help people. Um, just become better investors. Awesome stuff, man. I love it. You, I think, and as a syndicator, all those syndicators out there or want to be syndicators, you have to have that educational piece because people don't know. They don't just, as I said, the, the average investor doesn't just go and invest in apartments or, or self-storage or whatever. They invest in like the stock market, right? So they use a broker and they go and, so it's your role as a syndicator to educate them, bring them up to speed and hopefully one day they'll be they'll invest with you. So I think the, uh, the funnel needs to be consistently chugging along, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. All right, Mark. So you ready to get into the top five investing tips? Sure. Sounds good. What is the daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? So I wish I had more daily habits. This is probably one of the areas I'm not as strong as I should be. But mine, I don't know if it's a habit necessarily, but it's it's flexibility. Um, being able to overcome things that happen on a daily basis that aren't planned or anticipated. Um, I don't know if it's a habit necessarily or not, but it's something that I... <laughs> I'm able to do pretty consistently. I'm sure you're a busy man, but you know you find time <laughs> to do things right when if, if something comes up unexpectedly. Right, it talks about your flexibility. I do, yes. Right. Awesome stuff. Who is the most influential person in your career to date? So a guy named Kyle Wilson. A lot of people probably haven't heard of him, but if you heard of Jim Rowan before, Kyle Wilson started um, a Rowan Enter- Jim Rowan Enterprises 18 years ago. Uh, Jim Rowan did. Um, Probably the the most influential business development type guy in in the history of the world, and um, Kyle also built a million plus contact list, sold that to Success Magazine, and he has helped me uh, one through connecting me with many many people that have literally transformed my my life. But him just as a as a friend for one, but more personal from a professional standpoint, opening my eyes up to this is all relational. Forget all the transactional piece. Everything's relational. And if you have that in mind for the long haul, that will that will help you sustain through tough times. Awesome. No, I think that's that's very, very good advice. A relationship is uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know, unfortunately. But uh, not unfortunately, but if, if, you know, you know, to, create, to, to create business <clears throat> opportunities. So, so well done. Uh, what is the most influential tool in your business? Obviously, you're running around doing a lot of deals, nearly cl- closing on 2,000 units, which is incredible. I'm sure you'd have to have a, an influential tool. And what is it? <laughs> my my most influential tool is my phone. <laughs> it truthfully is. That's that's kind of a lifeline for me. You're not and, the only one. There's been many yeah. people on this show that, that say the phone is uh, – it's where, it's where they started when they first raised in capital, right? They say, that, that whole thing when you're sitting in seminars and like, open your phone and see how many people you can call right now if you had to raise $100,000, right? That's- right. <laughs> we have some tools we built that really aren't as, as important, but more we you know IT background. We have some tools that we built for real estate just to kind of overcome some frustration that I had not having tools, but really the, it comes down to the phone for me. 
That's awesome. And and giving that IT background, I think it's you you're creating a, some products right on the side to to help you with your business and to potentially maybe sell one day uh, as its own business, right? To, to to other syndicators like myself that you might have come up with this really cracking on you know tool that can help me you know solve all my problems when it comes to underwriting or, or due diligence as we've spoken about. But uh, but also awesome we absolutely do. And we, those are those are plans to kind of to be able to provide those to other people as well. Nice stuff, mate. Uh, this this question is used to be a success question, but I changed it to failure because you learn a lot more from failures than you do from successes. So what has been the biggest failure in your career to date and what did you learn? So my, I mean, I've, I've had, you know, many failures. I think um, just trying different things that didn't work. But uh, probably my biggest failure actually was, was back to an IT example where I built a product that was pretty revolutionary at the time. And um, I figured, well, you know, people should just want it, right? Because it's so great. But um, I really found out, and this is something I know now, I didn't really partner with other people like I should to try to get the name out there. I, I think probably I thought I'd be giving up a piece of the pie, where in reality, you know, a small piece of a bigger pie is much better than, you know, the whole pie that's small. And it's something I've learned. And I didn't brand, brand it or market it at all, really. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking back now, I'm actually quite frustrated and, and disappointed with the way that went. But also the the bright side to it is I probably wouldn't be doing real estate full time now, which is really my passion and has been for years, if that particular product would have taken off like it like it should have. It, it had we have customers that use it and things like that, but it went nowhere near the way it should have gone if I would have partnered with people and, and branded and marketed it like I should. Right. Right. Well, hey, it's a lesson learned, right? And you'll know for the next time when another awesome uh, IT product comes along, you know how to brand it and give up a piece of the pie. But I think that's really, really key that you'd rather have a, a larger piece, sorry, a smaller piece of a larger pie than the entire pie of a small business, right? Exactly right. Cool, man. And where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to reach out. They want to ask you some questions about you know, tips and advice on closing on large multifamily. I'm sure there's a pretty quick way to get in touch with you. So um, our website is thinkmultifamily.com. Uh, email is mark, M-A-R-K, at thinkmultifamily.com. And people can call me on my mobile as well, which is 214-552-4511. And we'd love to hear from people. Nice. And you said you had some educational events. Is that all up on your website if we list them in the show notes? We just finished one um, that's on there. We're, we're planning out the next ones, but it'll it'll be on the website for sure. Great, great. Well, we'll be all up on my website, as you know. Um, Mark, and unfortunately, Tammy couldn't join us today, but thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to summarize the top three things that I took away from today's um, conversation, and that was really, you know, maybe defining the the schedule. I, I think that the underlying tones that there's a lot of there's a lot to going on when you when you getting under a, a deal under contract. Uh, in that sort of 30 to 60 days, make sure you're defining a schedule and, and the target dates and work back from that. You mentioned that earlier in the show. Uh, I think understanding, you know, hiring the right people, don't try and do it yourself. Uh, your team is very, very important uh, and both on the physical side and also on the financial side. And if someone comes back to you and is shaking their head, do not move forward with the property and try to avoid <laughs> retrading, right? I think that was a, a dirty word that everyone <laughs> doesn't like to right. be to, to, to hear. But uh, did I leave anything out? No, I think that's perfect, Reed. Perfect stuff, mate. Well, thank you so much for dropping by. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Reed. Take care. Thanks. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some awesome investing advice and information for you guys to get out there and start successfully closing on more deals. Make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Mark and all the links we did mention will be on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to grow your real estate investing knowledge is because that's what we're all about here on this show, continuing to grow your financial IQ. We're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.